Hello, actor friend. Welcome to Acting Lessons Learned. I'm delighted to have your ear, your time, and attention. If you're new here, I'm Tawana Floyd, the creator and host of Acting Lessons Learned. I share intimate details of things I've learned in my acting career that helped me to become a working actor in Los Angeles. This episode is part of a series of commercial career experiences. This is the area where I've had the most success and received many questions on how I made it happen. Whether you've listened to this podcast in its entirety or bounced around a bit, you know that once I became eligible to join SAG, I waited two years to do so. But I have yet to share why I waited so long. And nope, it's not the cost of entry, the dues. It's something else. You will likely be able to relate or understand what it's like to experience imposter syndrome, unless you're an outlier with an extraordinary sense of self and self-worth or a sociopath. (laughs) Imposter syndrome was the reason why I waited two years to join SAG. Once I became eligible to join SAG, my feelings of inadequacy led me to believe I wasn't yet good enough to act opposite union actors. I felt I needed more time to get better. The biblical term, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another, is true. Joining the union when I did was the best thing for my career. Yes, for financial reasons, but also my craft became sharper by acting opposite working union actors. In this episode... I share how imposter syndrome played its part in delaying my decision to join SAG, the agent and two commercial teachers who significantly impacted my career by helping me to identify my value, and finally, the unethical non-union commercial that caused me to say, f*** this non-union work, it's time for me to join SAG. After I booked my first national commercial, I didn't believe I could do it again. I thought my first booking was a fluke, like a lottery. The odds just happened to be in my favor that one time. And I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to do it twice. The luck of the draw. The thing about success, when you do it once, you have to follow it up and make it happen again. But for me, I was caught up in the sophomore jinx. In baseball, the sophomore jinx means a rookie's second year will be a bad one. He'll get injured, play a horrible season, or the team will fall apart on account of his playing style. In college, it refers to classes getting much harder, and sometimes the student will change their major. In music, it refers to the artist having a billboard-topping mega-hit first album, then becoming terrified that the second album won't be as good, suffering ridicule from their fans. And in acting... It's can I execute another excellent performance to be hired again. The sophomore jinx can be so debilitating that people quit and walk away from a second attempt. Now, quitting wasn't an option for me. It wasn't even on my radar. Instead, even though I was eligible, I didn't join the union. At that point, I had booked so many non-union commercials between New York and L.A. that it felt easier, a.k.a. safer, to continue on that path. I was still with the agent that had gotten me the SAG National, and she was quite content to continue getting me non-union audition opportunities, and I went on to book three more non-union commercials with her. The third, though, would be my final non-union commercial. The experience I had on that set had me say, F these non-union jobs, it's time to join SAG. It was a commercial for realtors. There were about 10 principal actors hired. 
When I arrived on set, the production had the talent sitting on metal folding chairs in the direct sun. A union job requires production to provide the actors with safe, comfortable seating. But non-union jobs are lawless. They treat actors like cattle or slaves. It was a hot and uncomfortable day. But the final straw was the contract. The producer had slyly included an imperpetuity clause when my agent had negotiated a termed buyout. I called my agent to get her assistance on the matter, and her directive was for me to ask to speak to the producer, which made me irritated because part of an agent's responsibility is to be the middleman on these things to protect their roster of actors by reinforcing the negotiated deal. And also to keep the production from retaliating toward the actor while on set. If you've listened to episode 115, where I speak about my first commercial agent in New York City, Anne Wright, you know Anne handled these inconveniences with one phone call. There was no questions. So I was surprised that I was being left to fend for myself, which is an awkward position for me to be in because I didn't have the aptitude to go toe-to-toe with a producer. And also, I feared losing the job, or being regarded as problematic. I had no choice, though. I had to advocate for myself, and I tried to do so as discreetly as possible. And of all people I was dealing with, it was a PA who, like me, was not skilled to handle these issues. She was just as nervous as I am, which made me angrier, but made me double down firmer on my stance. And do you know the producer would not come to discuss the situation? The PA pointed him out to me. I could see him sitting on the other side, passing messages to her to tell me, with his final message to me being, tell her to cross out the imperpetuity and initial it. So I followed his direction, but I was still livid by the producer's discourteousness, and I was embarrassed because it turned into a bit of a scene. And then the other actors were against me saying, just sign it, you're getting paid, like what difference does it make? So I had to swallow the disrespect of the producer and my anger toward the other actors who didn't see the value in protecting theirs and our image while turning on me. I didn't have the courage I do now. The person I am today would have either signed the contract under duress or walked off the set if the producer hadn't come over to make it right or my agent didn't handle it. Also, I'm SAG-AFTRA now, so the contracts don't have imperpetuity clauses, but producers are always trying to get more for less at the actor's cost by adding other items into the contract. That final commercial was the beginning of my resentment toward that agent. Shortly thereafter, once I cheerfully joined SAG, like I intentionally set out to join SAG without her permission, I'm doing air quotes because those were her words, I terminated that agent. The entire account of that situation is in episode 102, Agent Termination Time to Go. And guess what? The contract I signed for the Realtors commercial came back to bite me in the butt four years later. The commercial had long stopped running, but there I was in an entirely new spot, a new edit, was my image, me, in this new commercial. I took a photo of the television and pulled up a copy of my amended contract from that spot. Actor friend, always keep copies, always make copies, 
but keep copies of your contracts for any services you offer, your name, image, and likeness. Always keep your contracts so that you know exactly what you sign if you need to go to court, but also just so that you can be able to present it in times like this where I thought I was going to be able to fight and get payment for this new edit that my image was in. I was so disgusted when I saw myself in that new spot. I contacted my new agent, a sharp negotiator explaining the entire ordeal, and she was on it. She got back to me in a couple of days, defeated. There was a vague phrase that worked against me. I can't recall what it is now, but she told them their unethical business tactics were the reason why I joined SAG. Not that they cared, but why not tell them anyway? Here's why it sucks to sign an in-perpetuity contract. Those producers can use the footage of me in any way they want forever and ever throughout the universe. So once Mars is up and running, yes, Mars, the planet Elon Musk is trying to make into a metropolis for affluent people, that realtor spot could air on Mars, a Mars TV network, and I wouldn't earn a dime more or whatever the currency will be on Mars. I mean, I'm being facetious, but you get what I'm saying. It's just incorrigible. So that is the commercial that made me say, I'm joining the union. And once I joined, the next hurdle was adjusting to a new criterion. I went from being a medium-sized fish in a non-union pool to a minnow in SAG's Pacific Ocean of Actors. I began auditioning for casting directors who didn't know my work. This was a whole new set of casting directors. The actors, the SAG actors, were Olympian-style auditioners, and my opportunities shrunk drastically. It was like starting over again. It was. It was starting over again. In auditions, I was often intimidated as if I no longer knew what I was doing in the room. I experienced brain farts, mental blanks. I had out-of-body experiences and difficulties comprehending the storyboard and the script's wording. Now, these SAG actors I was auditioning with, they were quick to learn lines, exacting in their execution, and seemed to be annoyed with me for not being able to keep up to speed. I sometimes had a difficult time understanding the session runner's explanation. They spoke with a shorthand I had yet to learn, and quite possibly because I was so in my head, I didn't hear them well. Now, I found out later that not all session runners are good at giving explanations. Some consistently over-explain, providing too much information that causes actors to be confused. That still occurs present day, and I sometimes wonder... Is it unconscious or is it on purpose? But that's a whole other episode. Fortunately, I've been working long enough in L.A. to know who the over-explaining session runners are and how to disregard the preamble and fluff they put into the directions. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, during commercial auditions, the session runner operates the camera, gives direction to actors, and works with casting directors, directors, agencies, and production team members to ensure that the audition and callback sessions run smoothly. And just like any human on a job, not all session runners are great at what they do, but when you're a new actor, you don't know that. But over time, if you have awareness, you figure it out and you try your best to make your audition count. I was lousy at auditioning, but in retrospect, I was making an adjustment to this new normal, but I was beating myself up then, and had I known the distinction of, I'm not bad, I just need to make an adjustment, it would have been helpful, but I didn't. So I ruined a lot of opportunities to book jobs because auditioning 
is the job. And some actors confuse the booking as the job. Nope, auditioning is the job. So now that I'm a SAG member going up opposite other SAG members who have been doing this much longer than me, I needed to get better at auditioning. My callback ratio was low. I would experience tremendous stress in a room, especially when I was paired with other actors. And when they asked us for a button or something funny to close out the audition, I would say something inappropriate, not not crass, but just statements that didn't make sense with what was happening in the moment. Now, by this time, I had left the agent whom I had booked my first SAG National commercial with, the one who left me to fend for myself on that last non-union commercial. I had leveled up to an agency with a roster full of recognizable booking commercial actors. And then here comes imposter syndrome letting me know, you don't measure up, girl. (laughs) And after 12 months of not booking anything, barely any callbacks, I had added a self-inflicted pressure that my agent would drop me because I wasn't booking. And that is real. That is real for a lot of actors. We're always kind of like, not always, but we have experienced when we feel like our agents are going to drop us because we're not working. But it's the opposite. Because if they see value in you, if they believe that you're doing your best and you're going to get better and one day you will book... They're not going to drop you. And that agent didn't drop me. And I actually went on to have an outstanding eight years with them. Thanks to Angela Strange, who was my North Star at the agency. I called her a pit bull in a skirt because she was a fierce negotiator. She was, well, she still is. She's a sophisticated, highly intelligent black woman who truly cares about her actors. I'd even argue she cares about all actors. Angela would call me out of the blue and check on me. (sighs) I'm getting a little emotional thinking about it. She'd ask me how I was feeling. We'd talk for a little while and then she'd say, Tawana, you're going to start booking. I've seen it happen to so many actors. It just takes a simple adjustment. You may not know what that is right now, but once it clicks, you'll be a booking machine. She believed in me. She was the first agent I had in L.A., who expressed her faith in my ability. And that went a long way for me. I was having such a hard time in L.A., as most people do. It's, it's such an adjustment. I had been here two or three years at that point. Living in Los Angeles is a demanding adjustment for anyone. And, and I thought I had a leg up coming from New York City. Surely I could adjust moving from one metropolitan city to another. But the added culture shock is Hollywood, the Hollywood system. It's its own beast that requires a slow, certain style of navigation. And when I tell you I was struggling, I was struggling financially, with friendships, intimate relationships. I was questioning whether I would stay in L.A. or not. It was hard finding a community, people who shared my sentiment and experiences, but more importantly, people who I felt safe with. All of my family was back in New York, but as my homeboy says so eloquently, I don't go back to Chicago. I can't see my dreams actualized there. So moving back to New York wouldn't be the most suitable move for me. And don't get me wrong, I had a handful of friends I could commiserate with as they were experiencing the same as me. But damn, nearly everyone in Los Angeles is striving towards something, some form of success, and usually in entertainment, and that makes us all narrow-focused. It's not on purpose that we become self-centered. It's the nature of this business, the beast. 
one truly has to make a concerted effort to consider others. It has to be a practice. And that is hard when you first move here because you're in an acclimation mode, which sometimes equates to survival mode. To have an agent call me from time to time to check on me and tell me it's going to happen one day, remain patient, meant a lot. And it's only now that I'm realizing how much I needed her words. It's only now that I recognize the depths of my appreciation for her. I'm going to send her a card. During one of our calls, Angela suggested I take a commercial class, a refresher course. I wonder if she could sense that my self-esteem was waning. But I sure do appreciate her making that suggestion, and I took her advice by trying a one-on-one with a guy, which was unsuccessful. He and I did not speak the same language, and he increased my feelings of inadequacy. And then I found two commercial teachers who made a positive impact, Killian McHugh and Jill Alexander. Killian, at the time, was a session runner for a prominent commercial casting director here in Los Angeles. For him, I learned the technical components of auditioning for commercials, how to take ownership of the room, how to interact with the props, how to read the commercial script for cues, and how to plan my implementation before I'd get into the room. And my most significant breakthrough came when I worked with Jill Alexander, a thriving commercial actor in her own right who had also once worked in casting. She taught me how to employ and evoke emotion in a commercial audition, how to use ad-lib exposition, what we call improv, at the top and the close of the audition, how to use my point of view about the product, the others in the scene, the location. She taught me how to bring myself using what makes me genuinely humorous instead of some fake persona of trying to give the casting director what I thought they wanted. The combination of working with both Killian and Jill lifted the cloud of uncertainty. I began to book national commercials again, sometimes three in a row. I returned to myself as the girl who moved to L.A. from New York City knowing how to audition. Now I was more confident. I could enhance the abilities of previous commercial teachers that Joan C. and Stuart K. Robinson had contributed. It was a discovery period where I learned, oh, sometimes, Tawana, you're going to hit a wall as an actor, just like anything else in life. And when you do, it's okay. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to tell you that you're not worthy. You might just need a refresher course or some new tools to move forward. There is this myth that commercials are all about a look. And yeah, a look is part of it, but the craft of acting is a major component. An ability to be present and to execute within the framework or narrative of the commercial's through line It's all happening so quickly. A commercial audition on average from entering the room could take five to ten minutes. So there's no time to build up a scene like you would in theater or a film or a television show. You get two takes, and those two takes need to be varied to show range. Because you want the director to know that if he brings you on set that you're going to have some ideas and he'll be able to lob some things at you, but also you'll be able to bring some ideas to make the day go faster, but also to enhance the spot. Those who respect the commercial audition process get more opportunities to audition. The frequency keeps the actor sharp, with fewer nerves becoming better all around at auditioning. Booking commercials became my new normal. I never take for granted that I've mastered the skill because like everything in life, change is constant. Change is constant. 
and staying sharp is part of the change. That's it for this episode of Acting Lessons Learned. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting me. If you found this episode insightful or valuable in any way and you want to support me further in my efforts, here are three ways to do so. First is to give Acting Lessons Learned a four or five star rating. This helps make Acting Lessons Learned discoverable on podcast platforms, allowing other actors to see or hear or see and hear. (laughs) And it's simple. On Apple, just go down to the show page for Acting Lessons Learned and scroll down to reviews and ratings. On Spotify, go to the show page, tap the three dots under the show's image and tap rate. The second way to support Acting Lessons Learned is to share your favorite episode with your fellow actor and tell them what you enjoyed about it. Send them a link. Make it easy for them. And in the third way, simple. You could buy me a coffee or a tea. Well, you could buy me a cough tea. (laughs) I'm a tea drinker. I'm not a coffee drinker, but the link is below. And if you want to know more about me and check out my bio, go to my website at TawanaFloyd.com. You can find me on Instagram at Acting Lessons Learned and also Life by Tawana. All of the links are in the description. And if you're wanting to be a commercial actor, start doing so. Killian still teaches. Another one of my favorite teachers who I met later on is Toby Lawless. Uh, Jill is no longer teaching. She's actually a writer now, and I can't wait to see what she comes out with. In the next episode, I'll talk about the commercial comeback. When a commercial returns to the airwaves and how an actor is paid based on its return. I'll see you in two weeks. And um, I think that's it. If I could do it, you could do it. We can all do it. It's not hard. It's challenging, but not impossible. So until next time, bye.